Welcome to the Business of Software podcast, where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Hello, and welcome to this week's Boss podcast. I'm Kirk Bailey, and this week we welcome Teresa Torres with her Boss 2019 talk, shifting from managing by outputs to managing by outcomes. Teresa is a product discovery coach who helps teams gain valuable insights from their customer interviews, run effective product experiments, and drive product outcomes that create value for both their customers and their businesses. Effectively, joining the dots between their research activities and their product decisions. She writes about continuous discovery best practices at producttalk.org. If you're like most leaders, you got to where you are because you're good at making decisions. You can quickly go from strategy to execution and you know exactly what should be done next. But for most of us, this strength can become a weakness. When we make all the output decisions, like what to build, what programs to roll out, how a process should work, our company's solutions are only as good as we are. To avoid this trap, instead of telling our teams what to do, we need to tell them what outcomes we expect them to drive. It's a subtle but powerful shift. Happy listening. Good morning, everybody. I'm losing my voice. Hopefully, I don't have to stop and drink water 25 times. We'll see how it goes. Um, so today, I want to talk about managing by outputs versus outcomes. Um, I realized from talking to people yesterday that we have a lot of sort of diversity in the room in terms of how familiar people are with this concept. Um, so it would really help if, as we kind of go through this, I can get some feedback from folks about what you've heard, what you've done. So I'm going to start with, um, yesterday we learned from Whitney about OKRs. That is one way of trying to manage by outcomes. Um, this is an old idea. I think Peter Drucker talked about it in the 60s. Um, Andy Grove has talked about it in his book. Um, recently more popularized by Google. Um, I think Harvard Business Review wrote about it in 2012, which means that now the idea is 100 years old. Um, but here's what I see. Even though we know that we should be moving towards managing by outcomes, and we'll, we'll get into what I mean by managing by outputs versus managing by outcomes. Um, even when we have drank the Kool-Aid and we want to do this, it's actually really hard. And it's really hard for us as leaders because our role in our organization changes quite a bit. So what I want to do is talk a little bit today about what this even looks like and why we struggle with it, and then hopefully give you some tips for how to think about um, how to move not just your organization, but also yourself individually. Because I actually think as leaders, we have the hardest work um, in changing the way that we work. So what do we mean by managing by outputs? Let's start at the beginning. Um, a lot of the work that I do is with product teams. Um, but if you're not a product person in the room, I really do believe this works broadly across the organization. Um, in fact, I teach a couple of business classes to people that are not product folks. And I use the exact same curriculum I use with product teams. Um, so when we talk about by managing by outputs, this is easy to think about in the context of a product team. Um, a lot of product teams are asked to deliver a fixed roadmap with some dates on it. So deliver these specific features by this timeline. That's a manager saying, I care about these outputs. Your responsibility is to deliver these outputs. Now, some of us are, are starting to think about what happens next? What if we produce all these outputs? Do we create any value for our business, for our customers? And that's what's leading to this shift towards managing by outcomes, where we're not just saying build these features or run these programs or implement these initiatives. Instead, we're saying we really have a goal, an outcome we're going for. And yes, we might run these programs or implement these features, but we're not done until we've reached that goal. And so the focus is more on the metric than on the activity. Now, what I see in practice is a lot of teams say, we get it. We want to have autonomous teams. We want to manage by outcomes. We want to take advantage of all the creativity in the room. Um, but what happens in practice is we, it looks more like this. 
<laughs> we go ahead and set OKRs. We give our teams a number. We tell them, you have, you're empowered. You have autonomy. Go reach that number however you want. But by the way, do it by building feature A, B, and C. Or do it by implementing program A, B, and C. Now, I think most managers are doing this because we just don't know a better way. Um, for, for so long, business has been influenced by this top-down hierarchical command and control. Um, we got to where we were because we mostly made pretty good decisions. And it's really hard to let go of that and let other people make good decisions as well. Now, so I've thought a lot about what makes this hard at the individual level. And I came up with this sort of horrible, vicious cycle where what happens is that as managers, we don't trust that our teams can reach their outcomes, right? So if we say, we need you to increase engagement or we need you to reduce churn, we can't just let go and say, okay, they're gonna go do that, right? Because most of our teams have been managed by outputs and they've never had to make those types of decisions. And because we don't trust our teams, we then start to micromanage their outputs, right? We get to this screen where we give them outputs, outcomes and outputs. And then once we start micromanaging our teams, as a result, they don't really want to tell us what's going on, right? Because when, we tell them what's, when our teams tell us what's going on, we start to micromanage. And so it leads to even less trust because we have no visibility into what's happening. Now, if we really want to manage by outcomes and not and really give our empowered teams the ability to determine their outputs, and there's a lot of reasons why we want to do this. Our, our frontline teams are closest to the work, they're closest to the customer, they're seeing all day, every day what works, what doesn't work. Um, we need to find a way to break this cycle. And there's two ways that I want to talk about how we can break this. The first is we need to teach teams how to communicate how to, one, how to, f how to find the best path towards an outcome and how to communicate that progress. And as leaders, we need to learn how to give feedback and give input without dictating outputs. Now, I thought a lot about how to give this talk because that first part, how do we teach teams how to work this way, is what I do for a living. And I could give a two-day workshop on just that. Um, and I have about 53 minutes left, so we're not going to do that. Um, but the second part of like what's the role of the leader, I really think is the part that's probably most important for those of us in the room. Um, but I can't really talk about the second part without talking a little bit about the first part. So I'm going to walk through it a little bit. It's gonna, you're going to look at it, and there's cool visuals, and you're like, ooh, I want to learn more. But that's not really what we're going to talk about today. I want to give you just enough so we can have that more important conversation. And then if you really want to learn more about that first part, I'm going to give you some resources so you can go ahead and do that in your own time. OK, so why don't teams know how to communicate progress towards outcomes? We've taught them to communicate progress by talking about outputs. So this visual, for, those, for the product folks in the room, it's a Trello board that I made up, and it's a 12-month roadmap for Netflix that I totally made up. Um, but this is how most teams communicate, not just product teams, right? If you're on a marketing team, you're probably talking to your manager about what marketing campaigns you're running. And if you're in HR, you're talking about employee engagement programs. You're not talking about the outcomes themselves. Because this is how most teams communicate progress, we as managers give input on those outputs. And so it means 100% of the conversation is about outputs. But what we should be really caring about is what impact are those outputs having? What outcomes are we driving for our customers and for our business? I like to use a really simple example of this. So when our teams tell us about outcome outputs, we give them feedback on outputs. And usually our feedback is not our expert manager feedback. It's our preferences as an individual person. And that's because our team has thought a lot about the outputs, but we've mostly thought about the outcomes. And so when someone comes and says, hey, I want to create a red balloon, that sounds pretty good, but maybe we have a preference for blue. And so we argue with our teams. We say, no, you know what? Let's not create a red balloon. Let's create a blue balloon. This sounds really silly, but I see it every week. 
Like we all do this, we forget. It's not really just about our preferences, it's about our customer, the need we're trying to solve, and is there really a meaningful difference between a red balloon and a blue balloon? And if our team wants to go with the red balloon, and we happen to prefer a blue balloon, but from a business and a customer standpoint, there's no meaningful difference, we should stay out of the way. And we don't do this, it's really hard. It's hard for us to know the difference between a preference and a true um, opinion based on evidence. And so as a result, we have this really common acronym that we're all pretty familiar with, right? In the product world, we like to say the hippo always wins. It doesn't really matter how much research you do, how close you are to the customer, your CEO is gonna helicopter in and tell you to do something else. Our job as leaders is to make sure we're not the hippo. Like we may be the highest paid person, but we shouldn't, that shouldn't mean our opinion doesn't always win, right? This is really what's causing this cycle to happen, is our teams don't want to tell us what they're doing because they don't want their red balloon to turn into a blue balloon just because we have a personal preference. So we need to do the work to understand what really matters, where should we be weighing in, and more importantly, how should we be weighing in. So I want to talk a little bit about the types of problems we face in business to, to expose why some of this happens. So there's this concept from decision-making, problem-solving research um, called ill-structured problems. You might have heard of them called, as referred to as wicked problems. Um, they're problems where there's no right or wrong answers. So they're, they're as compared to well-structured problems. So let's start there. A well-structured problem, the key takeaway is that there's rules that you can follow to solve the problem, right? So an algebra problem is a well-structured problem. Um, economists like to think of the world as a series of well-structured problems, right? Um, a lot of early business literature looked at business as well-structured problems. If you just pick what category your product fits in, if it's a cash cow, or right, we have these really simple frameworks. If you just apply the rules, you'll solve the problem. But we all know that that's not really true, right? All those frameworks take judgment, they take expertise, they take framing the problem. And that's because most of the problems we face in business are ill-structured. An ill-structured problem contains elements that are unknown. They require that the problem solver define the criteria you're going to use to solve the problem. And they require that we make lots of judgment calls along the way. We have to give structure to ill-structured problems before we can solve them. The other thing to highlight is that ill-structured problems have no right answers. It's not black and white. It's not that one answer is right and one answer is wrong. Instead, ill-structured problems only have better or worse answers. So when we talk about a red balloon versus a blue balloon, they're really both equally, they're both, they're both good answers. Maybe there's a reason why a blue balloon is better than a red balloon, but more often than not, when we give blue balloon type of feedback, all we're doing is we framed the problem a little differently, and instead of talking about how we're framing the problem, we're micromanaging our teams by giving them feedback on their outputs. So how we frame a problem is going to influence what types of solutions we can generate. We have almost 100 years of research on um, how designers solve problems, how we solve these wide open, ill-structured problems. Um, and really what we're seeing is exploring the problem space, how we frame the problem, is just as important as generating ideas. But in the business world, what we're seeing is that we're just managing the solution space. And that we're losing a lot of the learning because every solution we entertain is gonna help us better understand the problem. So if we, if we evaluate red balloons and blue balloons, we're gonna have a better understanding of what problem are we trying to solve. Okay, so when we manage by outputs, what we're telling our teams is that we have the right answer. We know exactly what we need to do to create value for our business. And what we want our teams to do is just do what we told them to do. We're assuming that the way that we frame the problem is the right way. And most of the time, we don't even bother telling our teams how we framed the problem. We just tell them the solutions. 
When we manage by outcomes, we're starting to recognize the problems we work on are complex, they're ill-structured, we need to take time to, to map out and understand the problem space, um, and that really we want our teams to do that work with us and to be a part of that so that we get to leverage all of their expertise and knowledge and frontline experience with our customers so that we generate better solutions, we run better programs, we implement better initiatives. <clears throat> when we do this, when we think about how do we, get, how do we help teams communicate how they're framing the problem, how do we communicate how we're framing the problem, we find ourselves in a situation where we're having much better conversations. We're not just talking about the outputs, we're not just micromanaging work, but instead we're exploring the problem space together. We're having much better conversations. So I want to talk through what this looks like. This is a visual that I use. Um, inevitably, whenever I talk about it, some of the room loves it, some of the room has another visual that serves a similar purpose that they love. So as I carry it forward here, I'm gonna use this visual, but I want you to know the key here is to externalize your thinking. If you have another way of externalizing your thinking, you don't need to use my tool. But we're gonna walk through how it works. Um, this was designed for product teams, but I've since used it for all types of teams across the business. It's, I called it an opportunity solution tree, which is super awkward language. Um, I'll get into why I use super awkward language in a minute. If I were to rebrand it, I would call it an outcome map because it really is mapping all of our potential paths to our desired outcome. So if as a business we've decided this is, we need to reduce churn, we need to increase monthly recurring revenue, um, we need to increase engagement. It's helping us as a team, both as managers and as our teams, visualize how we might get there. And it's gonna allow us to have better conversations and give better input than just output input. So how does it work? It starts with defining a clear desired outcome. We talked about this a little bit yesterday in the OKR talk. Um, then it requires that we do the work to discover the opportunities that will drive that outcome. Now, think about an opportunity as a problem. So I talk about exploring the problem space. Um, the reason why I use the language opportunity, even though it's super awkward, is because opportunity is broader than a problem. We often get really focused on solving a customer problem, but we also can delight our customers, we can replicate customer success. Um, so we want to have a little bit of this broader mindset than just fixing problems, but also creating delight and replicating success. So opportunities is just more inclusive language for customer needs, customer pain points, customer desires, customer wants. Now what's really nice about this visual when we think about it this way is the blue box at the top is your business outcome. That's what the business gets. The green boxes are customer needs. And if we only, if we, by trying to figure out how to drive our outcome, if we map it out from the perspective of what do our customers need, we're resolving that tension between what does the business need and what does the customer need. Now we're looking at what customer needs will drive our business need. And then finally, we have to discover the solutions that deliver on those opportunities. So I work as a product discovery coach. I teach product teams how to run this process. How do we start with an outcome, discover the opportunities that will address that outcome, and then discover the solutions that will deliver on those opportunities in a way that helps us find the best path to that business outcome. Now, we don't have a ton of time to go over this method, um, but I'm gonna give you the highlights so that we can then get into how does your role as a leader change in this type of world. So it starts with, we have to have a two-way negotiation about an outcome. So we got into this a little bit yesterday in the OKR talk. Um, I really like to see a leader work with their team on setting an appropriate outcome. Um, the next thing that happens is the product team goes out and interviews customers. I say product team, it could be any team. Literally, I've worked with marketing teams on this, HR teams, everybody across the company. They go out, they interview the people that would be impacted by their solutions. So if you're a product team, it's your end users or your customers. If you're an HR person working on employee engagement challenges, it's gonna be your employees. Who are the constituents that are gonna be impacted by whatever solutions you're building? You interview to discover what do they need? What are their pain points? What do they desire? What do they want? 
We're gonna map out the opportunity space. Then we're gonna pick an opportunity to focus on and we're gonna generate multiple solutions that address the same opportunity. Why do we do this? Decision-making research tells us we wanna make compare and contrast decisions. Which of these solutions is gonna best address the need? Most of us jump to the first solution we think of and we hope it solves the problem. Finally, we're not gonna just look at those solutions and be like, mm, that one looks good. We're gonna run experiments, we're gonna use rapid prototyping, we're gonna test our assumptions, we're gonna look at how do we evaluate these solutions to ensure that we're pursuing the most valuable one. So this is sort of the team process, this is what the team does. I wanna use this framework to talk about what is, if we're working this way, if we're externalizing our thinking so that we're being really explicit about how we're framing the opportunity space so that that sets up how we generate ideas. Um, this gives us a really nice way to now talk about what's our role as managers. How do we get out of managing outputs and back to managing outcomes? So remember, one of the challenges, one of the traps that we fall into as leaders is we start with this red balloon, blue balloon problem. This is a really silly example. I tried to come with, with the most harmless example, but now that it's in your head, you're gonna catch yourself doing it. Your team's gonna come to you and say, I think we should give this little kid a red balloon. And you're gonna go, you know what, I like balloons, but let's make it blue. And when that happens, I want you to catch yourself and say, why am I doing that? Is blue genuinely better than red? Or do I just feel like to be the expert in the room, I have to have an opinion, right? That's like the human messiness of this, is we feel like we have to have an opinion. Um, it's funny, I teach this, and just yesterday, I was sitting in the audience, and I was having a problem with my admin, and I turned to my boyfriend who's here, and I said, I really just want her to do what I tell her to do. <laughs> right? This is what we want as leaders. We just want our teams to do what we tell them to do. But that's not really what we want. We want to take advantage of their expertise. We want to ex take advantage of their experience. We want to take advantage of their knowledge. And we screw it up when we come in and say, no, I think a blue balloon is better. Because to the kid, the red balloon and the blue balloon are both awesome. There's no meaningful difference. And all we're doing is we're breaching trust with our teams when we do this. We're reinforcing this stereotype. And most of us are doing it every day and we don't even realize it. And this is how I know. So I was a startup CEO um, from 2009 to 2011 somebody else's startup. I don't recommend becoming the CEO of somebody else's startup. It's not very fun. Um, and I learned, which I'm sure many of you have had this experience, that I'd be talking with people on my team and I was expressing an opinion. Like, hey, what do you think about this? And then I'd come back three days later and they did that thing. And I was like, whoa, what did you do? They're like, well, you said do this. And I thought we were just like riffing, throwing around product ideas, and then suddenly it's real. Right, so part of this problem comes from the fact that if you're the boss, it's really easy for your team to confuse a preference or an opinion with do this. So we need to be extra mindful of what we're communicating and how. So let's talk about how we can fix this. So your first responsibility as a leader is to be really active in setting, helping your team set good outcomes. I like to look at this as a two-way communication. Um, part of it is because the leader has the best knowledge of the business priorities, right? So the leader knows what the business needs. As executives, we know our role is to think across the business, not what does my department need, what does the whole business need from my department. Most frontline employees don't have that perspective. If they're product people, they think about product. If they're HR people, they think about HR. What your team has is knowledge about what's possible by how much and how soon. So if you go to your team and you say, we're having a problem with customers churning, we need to reduce churn, your team knows what that's gonna take. They've either tried it before, they have some ideas of what they could try. If they have a baseline, they probably can say, reducing churn has been historically hard, we think we can only reduce it by a quarter of a percent in the next three months. Whereas the business leader is gonna say, we gotta reduce it by 10% next week. And then what we're doing is we're demoralizing our teams because we know that's just not possible. So this, it's really, I see, I see it 
go poorly when the leader just dictates the outcome. We demoralize our teams. I also see it where the team just picks an outcome and we're all often missing that across the business perspective. Okay, so then if your team has done the work to visualize the opportunity space, and I realize most of you have probably never seen this structure and they're not actually using it, but I'm gonna give you some tips for how to think about this even if they're not doing this. But I think one thing, the underlying principle of this visual is, can you help your teams externalize how they're framing the problem? So remember, how we frame the problem impacts the solutions we can generate. So maybe you frame the problem in a way where the red balloon was the better solution. And your team framed it in a way where the blue balloon was the better solution. But we battle about red versus blue, and we forget to expose that we're framing the problem differently. So the first thing that we can do is when our teams come to us with their ideas, and usually it looks like this. Even if they're not externally visualizing it, the conversation looks like this. They say, boss, you told me I had to reduce churn. Here's seven ideas we have. And when we just visualize our ideas, or we just talk about the ideas, and we skip the opportunity space, we're not exposing how we're framing the problem. And this is where managers just give, it, give feedback on the outputs, because we don't have more than that. So if this is the conversations you're having with your teams, if 100% of the conversation is about just the idea space, you want to start to introduce this concept of walk me through how you're framing the problem. Now, usually when teams start doing this, it's really shallow. So they start with a really shallow understanding of the opportunity space. Now, in a lot of these examples I'm using, um, they come from a Netflix example that I created. I've never worked at Netflix. I don't know anybody at Netflix. Literally, all of this was made up from my own experience with Netflix and talking to a couple other people. Um, I use it because it's relatable. Like You're probably all familiar with Netflix. So in this instance, you can imagine maybe your team interviewed one Netflix customer, and they heard a few problems. They heard things like, um, I can't find something to watch. Uh, my battery on the plane runs out. Um, the video takes forever to buffer, right? So this isn't a very deep understanding of Netflix's opportunity space. Yes, we're starting to get at customer problems, but you probably all right now could think of 12 things about Netflix that annoy you, right? So if somebody comes to you and this is their knowledge about the customer, we gotta send them back. Go talk to more customers. Do a better job of framing the opportunity space. This quote is, um, it's really awkward, so if you're trying to read it right now, I'm gonna walk you through it. John Dewey was a philosopher from around the beginning of the 1900s. Um, he really focused on um, American like civic life and how do we need to educate American citizens to support a democracy. We've clearly failed at that, by the way. Um, okay, so here's what John Dewey says. This is, it comes from his quote, book, How We Think. It's a really philosophical text but I think it's the best text we have on what it means to be a good critical thinker. So Dewey talks about we need to maintain a state of doubt and carry on systematic and protracted inquiry. These are the essentials of thinking. I'm not gonna lie, I had to Google protracted. It means more comfortable, like longer than you feel comfortable. So what Dewey is advising us to do, let's say we, someone says I have a blue balloon, that's a solution. Dewey is saying, let's maintain a state of doubt. Let's not jump to that first solution. And let's carry out a systematic and protracted inquiry. Let's search for longer than it feels comfortable. And let's do it in a systematic way so that we can guarantee that we're making a good decision. This applies not just to the solution space, but also the problem space. What customer needs are gonna create the most value for our customer and for the business. And this, I see really um, the cadence of business and the, um, we rarely give teams time to really do good critical thinking. But there's some easy shortcuts. If we just start asking what else is missing, what else should we be considering, what other ideas do we have, what other customer needs could we address, your blue balloon sounds like a great idea. 
what else have we considered? This is how we're putting Dewey's critical thinking into practice. The other thing I think our responsibility to ask as leaders is when our teams come to us and say, we have this great idea, I think it's going to solve this customer need, we need to ask, how do we know that customer need is real? Right? Did we just hear it from our loud sales rep who misunderstood the need? Did we, have we heard it from one customer who has unique needs? Or are we hearing it over and over and over again? And have we taken the time to talk to those customers, to observe those customers, and to really understand this is a need, it's real, and this is how many of our customers it's going to impact, and therefore this is how much value it's going to create if we address it. The other thing we can ask, what opportunities are missing? And I actually think this is the root of the red balloon, blue balloon problem. So here's what happens. Someone comes to us with a solution. We're thinking about a different customer need. We framed it a little different so the red balloon doesn't feel like a good solution. But instead of saying, oh, I'm actually thinking about the problem a little differently from you. Maybe we should align around that first. We just have the red balloon, blue balloon argument. So it's really important that instead of just saying, uh, I don't like your solution, that we take one step back and say, OK, we have to be curious. Tell me more about your solution. Who's it for? What need is it addressing? How are you thinking about that need? How did you learn about that need? Then if I'm considering a different need, I can say, OK, I see that need. Here's what I'm hearing from customers. Here's the needs that I've been learning about. And now, instead of having a red balloon, blue balloon argument, we're having a really rich conversation about our customers and about what they need. I apologize. These are weird transitions. Um, OK. I like to teach my teams to frame an opportunity as something a customer would say. Because when we frame our opportunities from the business point of view, we like to define opportunities as things like, I really wish I spent more money on Amazon. <laughs> right? Amazon wants me to spend more money on Amazon. But I don't really want to spend more money on Amazon. So if we frame our opportunities as something a constituent would say, it's a lot easier to catch that we're not being customer-centric. Now here's the deal. I will spend more money on Amazon if Amazon delivers it faster, if the product's really good, if they have what I need, if I don't have to get out of my pajamas and go to the store, right? We learned about pajama time. Um, these are things that are real customer needs that if we address them, will drive the business need of spend more money. But the reason why I like the opportunity solution tree to visualize this is the business gets one box, spend more money. All the green boxes are what's keeping us customer-centric. So really reframing customer needs in their own words is going to help be a really good litmus test. For is this really a customer need, or are we disguising a business need as a customer need? <clears throat> um, yeah, so sorry. The example on the slide is um, I want to pay for another subscription, right? which we all clearly. I think Disney's coming out with one this week, and somebody else. Apple's coming out with one this week, um, right? We clearly want to have a cable bill again. Um, whereas really what we want as customers is we want compelling content, right? And if Netflix delivers really compelling content, we're going to subscribe. If we have kids, you're probably paying for Disney, right? So the key is to really distinguish that and to make sure we're staying customer-centric. And I actually think this is the role of the manager because your teams are going to be so close to the product, it's going to be really hard for them to think from the customer's point of view. Everything, is going to everything in the opportunity space is going to show up as kind of a product feature, kind of a business need. And because you're a little further removed, you can help them reframe. You know what? Customers don't want another subscription. They want compelling content. How do we pull them back into the customer space? This is related. Oftentimes, I see people frame opportunities as features. Um, a customer might say, I want to fast forward through commercials. That's not an opportunity. That's a feature request. 
And one of the best ways to test whether an opportunity is really a customer need or if it's a solution in disguise is to say, is there more than one way to solve this opportunity? What would be build to do this? Now I get that like there might be different technical architect implementations for fast forwarding commercials, but there's one feature that's gonna solve this need, which tells me it's not really an opportunity. So when we think about fast forwarding through commercials, what's the real need? It, I don't have other solutions, but if I reframe it, it could be, um, I don't like commercials. Now there's other solutions I can offer, right? I can give you a subscription where you can just get to skip the ads. I could give you more entertaining commercials. Now if the need is a little bit different, if it's instead of I don't like commercials, it's I don't want to be extra, uh, distracted by anything extra, maybe you're watching your favorite TV show on your commute to work and um, you really want to get two episodes in and when there's commercials, you can't get the episodes in. Entertaining commercials doesn't solve that need, right? Skipping the commercials solves that need. This sounds silly, right, this distinction, but these, this is what makes or breaks our products. We misunderstand the need. We design a solution that addresses one need when our customer had a slight variation on the need. The conversations that get us out of the solution space or when we start to talk about how are we framing the opportunity? What are we hearing from customers and is it consistent? The other thing I like about this tree structure is it's not just about what opportunities are we capturing, but how are we grouping them and giving structure to the opportunity space. So some of you might have opportunity backlogs, that's becoming a thing, and then your opportunity backlog is infinitely long just like your user story backlog. So then the question becomes how do we prioritize them? And you've probably read about these opportunity assessment templates. Um, they've got dozens of questions. And if you have hundreds of opportunities, you now can spend the rest of your life assessing opportunities. So what I do is I have teams try to group related opportunities together. Um, and then what that does is it allows us to use the tree structure to help us prioritize. Now in the grouping, this is a really hard critical thinking task. It's forcing you to ask, what do we really know about these opportunities? What do we know about customer needs? Are they similar? Are they distinct? How, what's the right grouping? Um, I just did this in a workshop in New York on Thursday and Friday, and someone in their feedback wrote, thank you for making us feel the pain of critical thinking. And that was the result of this exercise. Um, it looks deceptively simple. It is, uh, it's mentally challenging, and it's the type of mentally challenging work we should be doing, but we often skip over. Now the benefit of putting this work in is that now we can use the structure to help us prioritize. We don't have to assess every opportunity we've heard. We can start with these top level branches and say which branch is most important. And then once we've picked one, we get to ignore the whole rest of the tree and just prioritize its children. Now again, if you're not using this visual, that's not really the point. The point is to, is to work with your teams to understand, do they understand the problem space? Can they, can they clearly and easily communicate the problem space? And are they, are they prioritizing it in a structured way? And can they justify the decisions that they made? Okay, so that's our role as a leader in giving feedback on how we framed the problem. We now want to look at how do we give feedback on the solutions they're generating? How do we suggest a blue balloon without destroying the idea of a red balloon? The first thing I like to look for is are they focused? So if you took all the ideas in your backlog, if you took all the programs you were running and you mapped them against customer needs, odds are you would have one idea for each need that you've encountered. The problem with this is we're not taking advantage of our creative minds. We're jumping to the first solution. So remember, Dewey wants us to maintain a state of doubt. So what we really want to do is we want to pick a target opportunity and generate more solutions than we're comfortable doing. That's that systematic and protracted inquiry. So you can see here we have about 20 ideas for the same need. Now when we start to evaluate which of these ideas might work best, we're comparing and contrasting. Decision-making research tells us 
Comparing and contrasting leads to better decisions. So you can ask your teams, what else have you considered? It looks like we're only working with a couple ideas. Should we generate more? The next thing we need to do is we need to evaluate those ideas. We need to figure out how do we know what's going to work. So this is where we get into um, discovery methods like um, rapid prototyping, running product experiments. Most of this is going to be done by your team. So what's the role of the leader? The first thing I look for is, are they testing their assumptions? So more often than not, a team has an idea for a program. They want to implement the whole program. A product team has an idea for a feature. They've probably, ever, almost everybody at this point has learned to at least usability test things. So they prototype the whole feature. Or worse, they build the feature and A-B test it. The problem with this is we just did a lot of work before we learned a single thing. And for those of us that are doing this work, that are actually testing what we're building, we're measuring the impact of what we're building, what we're finding is that even the best teams have less than a 50% hit rate, meaning most of the ideas we generate are not going to work. They're not going to have the impact we expect. And our job is to learn that earlier, not later, so that we save our, our time and resources. So part of this is how do you deconstruct an idea into its underlying assumptions? How do you break it down into iterative tests? So you're investing a little, you get positive feedback, you invest a little bit more. You get more feedback, you invest a little bit more. An easy question as a leader to ask your teams, what are the things that need to be true for this idea to work? How do we test those things? The next one, I have a little bit of a silly example to, to explain. Do the ideas still address the target opportunity? I want you to imagine it's the 1500s. You're the captain of a ship sailing from Cambridge, UK to Cambridge, Massachusetts. And you, um, your goal is to cross the Atlantic safely. And you know there's going to be a few needs along the way. You need to prevent scurvy in your crew. Um, and you need to safely navigate the Atlantic. Obviously, we could build out a huge opportunity space here. And one day, someone on your crew comes to you and says, Captain, the crew has scurvy. I think we should give them oranges. I hear that cures scurvy. Somebody else on your leadership team says, you know, I don't really like oranges. Let's give them grapefruit. You go, OK, grapefruit's great. We'll give them grapefruit. Then the guy responsible for cleaning the deck raises his hand and says, I don't want to deal with grapefruit peels. Can we give them apples instead? That's a reasonable request. And everybody says, yeah, let's give them apples. What happened? We iterated our way to a solution that apples are delicious. They're a totally valid fruit. They're shiny. That's a great idea. But they don't solve the problem. This sounds silly. I just taught a workshop on Thursday and Friday. I told them this idea. Everybody laughs. I know it's going through your head. You would never do this. <laughs> then we worked on a case study, and they started to evaluate their solutions. And at least three of the eight teams said, oops, our solution no longer addresses our target opportunity. We do this all the time. And it's because each of those steps from oranges to grapefruit to apples was a logical step. There was a valid reason. And each of those solutions is a good idea. They're all good ideas. We could do all of them. But only a couple of them solve the target opportunity. This is something as leaders I think we want to be on the lookout for. As your teams start to explore solutions, and especially as they evolve those solutions through experimenting and feedback and fixing problems that they encounter, constantly be asking, is this still solving our target opportunity? You're going to be surprised how many great ideas don't drive your target opportunity and don't drive your business outcome. And we can save our teams a ton of time. OK. So this is what, um, this is a, what most trees end up looking like. They get pretty big as you interview customers. Um, and you get a start to get a sense for what might drive our outcome. This is, again, is a made-up Netflix example. I don't really have knowledge about Netflix's world other than as a customer. Um, what's nice about this is if you had your teams externalizing their thinking in this way, 
you can see that we're not just talking about a red balloon and a blue balloon. We have a lot of solutions we're exploring. Now, we're not going to experiment with 20 ideas for the same opportunity. We're going to whittle that set down. But if some of those don't work, go back, work out, we can go back to the larger set. So now when someone says we want to do a red balloon and you say a blue balloon, it just gets added to the consideration set. You having an opinion about ideas for solutions is OK, because there's lots of ideas for solutions. You're not telling your team what to build. You're just throwing a suggestion out to be part of the consideration set. And more importantly, if the reason why you want to do a blue balloon is because you are framing the problem a little bit differently, it's now clear you can look at the opportunity space and say, you know what? I would structure things a little bit differently. I would reframe this opportunity a little bit differently. Or I just talked to three customers, and I'm hearing this need, and I don't see it on your tree. Maybe that's more important than what we're focused on right now. And you know, in business, we ping pong all over the place, right? We create a crisis every time we hear a customer need. And we jump from one week, the problem's this, and this week's the problem that. We drive our teams nuts. If we can visualize the opportunity space when we have a crisis, we can put it in that context and say, OK, something bad happened this week. How does it compare to all this other stuff we're looking at right now? Do we need to interrupt our work? Or is this other stuff still more important? And because we've externalized our thinking, we have a much better conversation about it. OK. So I know um, that I just threw a lot at you in particular if you've never been introduced to this visual or some of these discovery ideas. Um, I did create this map. It's called The Role of the Leader. I know the text is too little, um, so don't try to read it right now. It's just a brief summary of what we talked about, questions you can ask your teams. I'm, um, I will make it available to you in just a second. Um, what we get when we do this, when we externalize our thinking this way, and as leaders, we ask these probing questions rather than jumping in and saying, I think we should do a blue balloon, is we start to break this cycle. When we contribute to how the problem is being framed, when we help generate solutions, when we ask good questions about how we're evaluating those solutions, we stop micromanaging. And then our teams have a way of communicating the progress they're making towards their outcomes. And we break this cycle. So there's two maps. The, first, the one on the left is the one that your team follows. It's what is your team doing to find the best path to a desired outcome. The one on the right is for you as the leader. What are the questions you ask to help understand what's happening in this visual? And remember, you don't, have to use, you don't have to train your teams on how to use this visual. You can if you want. But the ideas here is how do you ask for what's missing? How do you encourage your team to share how they're framing the problem? Um, you can grab both of these at producttalk.org slash leadingdiscovery. Um, and I would love, I'm very easy to find online. Um, I blog at producttalk.org about continuous discovery. I'm really active on Twitter. I love talking about this stuff. So feel free to reach out, and let's talk about what's hard, what's easy, what's working for you, um, and keep the conversation going. Thank you. We'll take some questions quickly. You know the drill. Hands up. We'll line the mics up. Let's start at the back here. Teresa, I'm here. Thanks for the great talk. Um, so I like to think that um, I'm not only a leader, but also an expert in some things. And don't we all, right? So um, most of the times, I don't care about the color of the balloon. Sometimes I'm really, really sure it's going to be red. So do you have any practical advice on how to tell when um, are you really contributing, you, you're doing the right thing by, by, by uh, offering your expert opinion, or when you're just being a hippo? Or should we, you know, if we're a leader, should we just relinquish our role as an expert? And, and even though that could have been a factor that led you to be a leader in the first place. Yeah, I don't think you should relinquish your role as an expert by any means. I think here's the thing. Um, we do want to contribute our knowledge and our expertise. We do want to help with problem framing. 
We even want to help with solutions. So here's what I see happen most often. A leader says, we should do X. What they're not saying is, I think we should do X because in the past, I experienced problem A and, and, and solution X solved problem A. And, and the problem we're looking at right now looks a lot like problem A. If we did that, now our teams can say, okay, help me learn about what you experienced with problem A in your prior experience, and let's evaluate is the situation we're facing right now similar enough? What are the ways in which it's similar? What are the ways in which it's different? So that we're doing two things. We're taking advantage of your expertise, but we're still evaluating, is this the right solution in this specific context? And we're partnering with our teams on that. So we're not just going to them and saying, I really need you to do solution X. We're remembering we have to um, include in our feedback why, the how we're framing the problem and see if it matches up with how they're framing the problem. One for, uh, two forward. Are there any yeah. on this side, by the way? Um, yeah, we're from the same company, but uh, looking at different problems. <laughs> Who's the boss? Uh, yes. So it seems like your teams are hugely <laughs> motivated and they all are eager to give you all kinds of ideas. Uh, but of, what if your teams actually prefer that, I don't know, the product manager just tells them what to do and they take care of the technical stuff uh, and they don't want to get engaged. Uh, do you have any tips how to get them more interested and like make them think about the problems they're thinking from like a broader perspective? And Yeah, so... I'm gonna ask a question. Let's say you're at a bar, it's a Friday night, you're having a drink with a friend. Your friend starts telling you about a problem he or she experienced. What's going through your mind? What's your first reaction? How to solve it. Human nature. Who has this the most in our organization? Men. Engineer, that's a good answer. <laughs> Engineers, right? Engineers, we solve problems. That's what we do for a living. So if you're finding in your organization that your engineers don't want to be involved in the problem solving, that is a cultural problem. Here's what happens. We've dictated outputs for so long, our engineers no longer think their opinion matters. And you're going to have to rebuild that link. They're human beings. Human beings are problem solvers. It is human nature that we hear about a need, we want to solve it. So there's two ways to address this problem. One, invite your engineers to do discovery with you so they're hearing firsthand from the customer what their needs are. Two, don't just take in your engineers' ideas and do something else. Invite your engineers to be full partners in idea generation and evaluating ideas. We need to reteach our engineers that not only do their ideas matter, but because of their technology expertise, they're more likely to generate a better solution than anybody else in the building if they get first-hand knowledge of customer needs. So it takes work, but I really think that that's a symptom of a cultural challenge. Well, so all the questions are on this side, so they're obviously more intelligent and have been listening better. <laughs> um, that's your chance to come back, left-hand side. Kate. Uh, thank you for the great talk, and uh, maybe my question... Closer to your mouth. Uh, maybe my question will a little bit reiterate the previous one. So um, you describe the situation when you uh, want to discuss something with your team, but then teams just start implementing it right away. So I, I encountered this situation many times, and uh, do you have like a framework how to solve it and how to make uh, your team thinking about more ideas first, like slow them down, and don't think about implementation, but rather think about uh, brainstorming and that sort of stuff. Because they, uh, what um, I found um, contributes into this uh, kind of readiness to uh, execute is um, the fact that if they generate their own ideas, they take more responsibilities and yeah. probably keeps them from generating more ideas themselves. So any suggestions? Yeah, so I think um, a few things here. When you generate a lot of ideas for the same need, ideas become cheap, right? So if you have one idea for one need, and you come, your team has one idea, and you come to them with another idea, it feels like you're telling them what to do. If your team is considering 20 ideas, and you just contribute to that pool of ideas, and you really clearly communicate, 
Here's an option to consider. And again, this will take time to build that trust. Um, ideas become cheap, and it's not a red balloon versus a blue balloon. It's the infinite universe of balloons, and we just need to find, out, find a solution that will work, right? This is the same with opportunities. Oftentimes, we hear about a customer problem. It's the last person we talk to on the phone. We helicopter in, and we say, we've got to solve this problem right now. We don't bother to ask, what are the other customer problems we're addressing? So I see this a little bit. It's analogous with when teams are new to running experiments. If you run one experiment a quarter, a failed experiment is really costly. But if you run five experiments a week, a failed experiment is no big deal. So with ideas, one of the things that we want to cultivate is how do we consider so many ideas that idea suggestion isn't this weighty thing? And then I think as leaders, it's also really important that we talk about consideration sets. This is the set of opportunities we're considering. This is the set of solutions we're considering. And making it really clear that we're just adding to that consideration set. We're not dictating this is the way we're going to go. I'll come back to you, Ben. Though I'm sure there was someone at the back there trying to restore honor to the left-hand side. <laughs> Am I up? Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hello. Uh, so it seems clear that sort of at the higher layers of a company, and we're here. All the way over here. Um, at the higher layers of a company. Oh, thank you. Hello. <laughs> Hello. You want to manage by, by outcomes. But if you imagine like a, you know, a growing company or even like kind of a boring old-fashioned company, you know, a retail store or something, there's like layers of jobs and responsibilities where like you just really want people to just like perform the work that needs to be performed. Yeah. What are your thoughts on like how to find that edge and how to help the right people move up that over time? Oh, this question is like personally palpable to me right now because I, <laughs> I really want my assistant to just do what I told her to do. Um, <laughs> we had a pretty big error happen yesterday and it was client facing and I was sitting here in the audience and I just wanted to lose my shit, excuse the language. And I know better, right? It was an honest mistake. Um, it's hard. I think this is the hardest thing we do as leaders is that there's always going to be, like you don't want your retail cashier to be reinventing your business, right? Like it's not the right role for them. Um, but I do think every human being needs some autonomy in their job. This is part of that idea of mastery from Dan Pink's book. Um, I really think we are drive, autonomy, mastery, and I forget the third one. Um, but it's this idea of like we all need to have some sphere of influence, some sense of defining how we want to work. And I think the key is just to really get creative about for each level of employee, what is that control you can give them? And I, I, I don't have all the answers. I think um, one of the most challenging things I've done in my entire career is learning how to work with an admin. Um, and I'm pretty sure I'm failing at it. And it's because I can't find this right balance of what's the outcomes that gives her control that gets me the quality that I want. And I haven't figured it out yet, but I know that it's not me micromanaging what she does, because I keep doing that and it doesn't work, right? So I don't, I'd be happy like during the break or whatever to brainstorm with you for different types of roles, but I definitely don't have all the answers. What I do know is that when we give people autonomy and we find that scope and it works, our employees surprise us every day. We get way more from them. They, they come up with better ideas than we would have dictated. Okay, one last question, Ben. Hi, I'm here. Yeah. Somewhere in the middle. Over here, gotcha. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for sharing that second level, kind of about uh, the framing part to make sure that everyone's framing it correctly or at least on the same page. Um, I guess my question is, is there a correct way to frame the problem? Because if you're dealing with different subject matter experts, aren't they all in some cases going to frame it from their own expertise? And once you realize, okay, we're not confused, we, you know, this is how I'm framing it, this is how you're framing it, is there a right way to frame the problem to get to the right outcome? Yeah, this is a fantastic question. You hit on a couple things. So you'll remember when I talked about ill-structured problems, they don't have right answers. They only have better and worse ones. And the visuals that I used there, there was no, the idea of a right answer, like an algebra problem has a right answer. Um, if you're familiar with the traveling salesman problem, there's better and worse solutions, but there's not one best optimized solution, right? It's a, it's a, it's a complex, challenging problem. 
This is the type of problems we're facing in business. So there isn't, I don't want you to think about it as like, oh, my framing is better than your framing. And that piece that you really touched on that I think is the thing we do want to capture, we're all going to frame the challenge from our own unique knowledge and expertise. And if we want to come up with good solutions, we want to integrate all of that knowledge and expertise. And this is where I think externalizing your thinking is a really powerful tool because it's hard to align across different perspectives when we sit in a room and talk, right? You've probably experienced this every week in your leadership meetings, right? Like it's really hard to align when we're just verbal. But as soon as you start making things tangible and concrete and you visualize them, you'll be surprised at how many different perspectives you can quickly integrate. And that's what leads to, the, I think, the better problem framings. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.